Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, mom, Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The year is 1994. And do you like pineapple? Depends. When does it expire? The movie? Chun King Express. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear, and this is the show where we are trying to find the 100 best movies of all time. We are searching high and low. We want your help to find what we think is the quintessential of cinema, not just American cinema, worldwide cinema. We have cracked it open. We've gone through the AFI list. We are now going through miniseries to break down genres, and when we find that list, we are sending it into outer space. Uh, Amy, I am thrilled to be doing this with you and especially excited to be doing this miniseries of Couple Goals. I love this idea for a miniseries. What we're doing in here is we are looking at films about couples, not necessarily couples that work out, but maybe couples that do romantic comedies, dramas, and beautiful, beautiful swoony movies like today's film, Chunking Express. Now, last week we talked about When Harry Met Sally, and it was great to kind of see everyone's reaction to the film because a lot of people out there are seeing it for the first time and it is connecting it is working and that made me uh, that made me happy me too me too I, I i there's nothing i love more than showing somebody a movie for the first time it's just such a gift and i mean to me chunking express is one of those movies that i was shown for the first time and i remember it feeling like a gift to the person who showed it to me so what a, what is cinema but a gift we give our friends by recommendations? By the way, this podcast gave me a gift because last night was the first night that I saw Chunking Express, and I cannot believe that I missed it because I came to my coolness awareness in the '90s, and I feel like this would have been a perfect film for me to digest along with my true romances and my Cameron Crowe films, and you know, I just feel like it fits so perfectly. It, they all communicate with each other. Um, I want to talk about all of that, but I wanted to pitch you something, and I haven't talked about this to anybody involved in the show at all, but I wanted to see if you would be open to calling an audible 
on this show. So at any point, when you and I are talking, we each get one, and maybe we can we can figure out when we use it. So say we're talking about Harry Met Sally, and we're like, oh my gosh, Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan, they had a great chemistry. I don't know if Sleepless in Seattle holds up. You can say, I'm calling an audible. Next week, we're going to watch Sleepless in Seattle, and we push the series by one episode. If we feel like we Whoa. are, we get into a conversation that's worthy. I'm not saying it's yeah. an every week thing. Mm-hmm. It's just when we feel like we are in a moment that we need to go and research it. Like I was thinking a lot this week about Sleepless in Seattle and you got mail. And I was like, ooh, I wonder. And I, I really was trying to get into it. I was like, oh, I don't want it to get too far away. But I was wondering if you'd be open to this idea. Like, you know, obviously it would it would maybe push our series one or two. And I, I would say we wouldn't do it every time, but I just wanted to throw it out there as maybe an idea and see what the audience thought, see what you thought. I don't know. That's interesting, that idea of gamesmanship. Because... You're right. There have been times in the past when we're talking about a movie and yet we keep talking about a different movie or where the people listening um, might, as they might well say for Chunking Express, I love Chunking Express, but I really wish you were talking about In the Mood for Love. Right. And then we started putting it off and then we don't get to it again. And we were like, well, we just Mm -hmm. did one of those films. So it it allows us, if we feel like we're hitting a wall, you know, in a good way to take a beat and go and explore it. So it's, it's basically... Uh, a chance for us to do it. Uh, you know, again, we use it very, you know, sparingly and we have to make sure that Josh approves as well. But uh, it could be something I think that would be a lot of fun because I think it would follow the actually organic nature of the show. I like that. I mean, to me, these miniseries are all us following our curiosity. And yeah. so uh, and so if if we have a dowsing rod, can I have one of those dowsing rods? You know, Ooh, like yeah, giant get that Y shape. Rod. They'll think I'd like to douse. Where our dowsing rod takes us, I am fine with. I will dig my hole where that dowsing rod says here. All right. I am excited. So we now just throw it into the mix. Uh, we have to make sure that Josh approves. But I believe we can throw this into the mix and say, if something comes up, it is worthy of a stop. And let's go approach it next week. I think it could be good. Maybe it's a bonus episode. Maybe it's whatever. But I think it's worthy because sometimes I get, I got really in my head last night thinking about Harry Met Sally and just like, oh, what is the relationship with Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan? Was that as good? And it just is an interesting comparison while it's still fresh in your head. It's like, I want to go watch that now. But yet for the show, we have to watch this, which is great to watch this. But it's also like they're kind of communicating a little bit as well. You're exactly right. Okay, it's a deal. I give you my virtual handshake. I'm. This is me. I'm extending a hand towards the Zoom. The Zoom. Do you see it? It's very yes, big. Yes, I do. And I'm watching Josh, right, and he's not out. freaked out enough. I, I'm. I'm. I'm going to shake it there I'm too. Gonna, I'm going to take my hand and use it to eat Josh's head. Right. Josh is just shrugging. So I feel like all right. So we all are agreeing that at any point we can call an audible, <laughs> but we'll use it sparingly when we find something that is really worthy of it. Um, and uh, you know, and I think that kind of ability to let uh, chance take over us is actually a great entry point into today's uh, film. So with that in mind, Amy, let's chung school. The year is 1994. For the first time, the public are introduced to the George Foreman Grill, the Wonder Bra, Beanie Babies, Amazon, PlayStation, Friends, the TV show, and my favorite musical artist, Corn. Yeah, get your corn on with a K. Uh, some celebrity deaths include Kurt Cobain, John Candy, Richard Nixon, Nicole Brown Simpson, and Jeffrey Dahmer. 
Nancy Kerrigan gets her knee bashed in and McDonald's gets sued for serving too hot coffee. What a year. This is a big year. This is when I graduate high school, Amy. It's all fresh for me. And Nelson Mandela says in his inauguration speech as president of South Africa, never, never again will this beautiful land experience the oppression of one by another. Uh, This year's movies include The Shawshank Redemption, Pulp Fiction, The Usual Suspects, Speed, and today's film, The Chungking Express. Holy moly, what what a year, what a film. Um, Since the film is essentially in Cantonese, I'm not going to play a clip, but I'll just jump right to you, Amy, and say, uh, who's in it? What's it about? Who directed it? All the good stuff. All right, let's talk about it. So Chungking Express, it is written and directed by Wong Kar Wai. Uh, this is the film that made him a huge sensation in the West. And Chungking Express, it's about two couples who bump into each other in this Hong Kong shopping maze called the Chungking Mansions, which is a real place you can go visit it. Um, I say two couples because this film is divided into two halves. So in the first half, you have a recently dumped cop who winds up spending the night with this drug smuggling murderess. He never really knows she's a drug smuggling murderess and nothing really happens, but they have an interaction. And in the second half, another recently dumped cop does not realize that the counter girl at his local diner where he stops, um, it's called the Midnight Express, which is where the second half of the title, title comes in, that this counter girl is breaking into his apartment and eating his ramen and playing with his stuffed animals. But really, though, <laughs> this movie, Chunking Express, it's really the story of just four lonely individuals in a city that feels really quick paced and crowded and disposable. In the cast, we've got Bridget Lin, Tony Leung. Fei Wang and Takashi Kaneshiro, they are all heavy hitters in Hong Kong cinema or about to be heavy, heavy hitters. Uh, Chungking Express was released in Hong Kong on July 14th, 1994. And when you take that and rewind it back, there was a really great love song on the charts, charts the week that it was released. It is a song all about what you would do if you had your chance to be with the person you love. It's by All For One and it's called I Swear. Classic. What a classic. It is. And you know, we're with the line, I swear, like a shadow that's by your side. Mm-hmm. I think that really sums up Fei Wong. She's a shadow in his life, going through his laundry, being by his side. I love this plot line that we open up on. It's, you know, it, the movie opens up, and I think, I know a lot of people compare Wong Kar Wai to like Godard, right? Like, and I think they're, you know, again, I'm very limited in my knowledge of Godard, but there are these elements of, um, I, I think, capturing these like moments, right? And, and that opening sequence, you know, it looks like almost Godard through like an MTV lens in a way, you know, it has a very music video, a look and feel to it. But I love this world that he set up for that character, this, you know, this character who is, you know, running some sort of big operation, getting all these men suited up and getting their shoes on and, and trying to run this like big drug deal. It, it's such a evocative, and we don't know anything about it, but it's done so well. She's switching languages, Popping around. She's such a badass. I love that character. What a great character to go out on. I mean, it's such a enigmatic character. It's such a, like, I, I could have watched a whole movie just about her. 
Yeah. And, and, you know, even just like speaking about this idea of her making the two films at once, you know, the other film was also a Wong Kar Wai film, like this big epic he was working on forever called Ashes of Time. And, you know, he had just founded his own production company and he was spending a ton of money trying to make this like huge, more historical epic and get it off the ground. And he was like, I'm running out of money. I have to like make some money to like, I have to make another film almost to keep this film going. What's a little thing I can make that's like in a neighborhood I know really well. He grew up near um, the Chunking market. Like, what's the thing I can like get my actors together and do on the weekends? It's almost like a side project to his main thing, which was Ashes of Time. And then this really becomes the one that actually takes off, the one that he's shooting on the weekends, getting around the limitations of like, oh, I can't get all my cast together. Well, then it'll be a movie where everybody's alone and not together and not in these gigantic group scenes where I don't have to like build it all in conversations where I'm building it more on like monologues and shooting people walking through busy areas. I mean, it, and, and the, the idea that they shot this like a road movie, everything is shot in sequence. You know, he's writing this film uh, the night before the morning of the filming, they're improvising dialogue. The whole thing is done in 23 days. Um, and I think it, I'm impressed with how stylized it looks for a film that is incredibly run and gun. I mean, it's so run and gun that like, even when they flood that apartment, they literally flooded an apartment and it flooded the apartment below that apartment. And they were sued for that. Like there was no, it really was like indie, like indie, indie filmmaking. Yeah. And the apartment they flooded was the cinematographer's apartment. What? I didn't know that. Oh. Yeah. No, this is him talking about it. He was like, it was so run and gun that they were like, can we use your apartment? You live right by these escalators, real escalators that are kind of this famous landmark in that area of the shopping district. And he's like, fine. And then they flood his apartment, which they did not give him a heads up on. Never let a film crew into your apartment. I lost most of my CDs. I lost my fax machine. Uh, the phone never worked again for a year. It was overtaken. I mean, one of the kind of like, okay, eye rolling things is that Christopher Doyle has said since then that it was okay that they flooded his apartment because it became such a landmark, especially for Japanese women who loved this movie, that they would tour Chongqing. They would come down towards the market. They would like find his apartment where the scene was shot and he would open the door of his apartment every morning and there'd be like cute Japanese girls who loved his movie and he got tons of dates out of it. So he's like, that's fine. But they still flooded his apartment. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. I'm Katie Rich. I'm one of the hosts of Vanity Fair's Little Gold Men podcast. Every week, we cover the ups and downs of the Oscar race, from Barbenheimer to the Golden Globes controversy, and much more. We also have weekly interviews with some of the year's biggest contenders, like Emma Stone, Paul Giamatti, and America Ferreira. Whether you're a Hollywood insider or just want to win your office's Oscar pool, Listen to Little Gold Men, available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening now. You know, Amy, I I referenced this in the beginning of the show. You know, 1984 is a year where there's a lot of, I would call it like mainstream independent cinema or the embracing of 
this new indie class of filmmakers. You know, obviously Pulp Fiction's coming out, Usual Suspects. And even though I don't think Usual Suspects is like an indie, it it kind of has that feeling of a who are these new people, these new faces. And it's no wonder that Quentin Tarantino is so taken by this film because it feels so much like the things that he explores. And I specifically was thinking about True Romance. I couldn't help but see uh, True Romance in here in, a, in, a, in elements, but also uh, Cameron Crowe's singles. I was like, is this like a Cantonese version of singles? You know, it, it, it is about people who are love and loss and heartbreak. And it's something I think is so hard to kind of capture on film effectively. Like what that feeling of a breakup feels like, what that feeling of loneliness when you're in that self-pitying moment of a breakup is. And, and you know, we, we talked about it a little bit last week and we see that that really affects Billy Crystal's character in his film. But here we, we really are living in more of the heartbreak than the falling in love. I love that we're starting off by talking about this moment and these voices that are really bursting forth in the 90s. Because, yeah, like, Chongqing Express would not have been a thing this big in the States if it weren't for this moment and these directors kind of looking around and taking stock of each other. It was Quentin Tarantino who saw this film and he pushed Miramax to, you know, get the rights to distribute it around America. And in fact, uh, it wasn't distributed here until 1996. And if you bought a VHS copy of Chunking Express in the 90s, it opened with Tarantino wanting to talk to you about it. Here he is. When I was with Pulp Fiction, I was at a festival at, uh, in Stockholm, and I had seen a film of Wong Kar Wai's before called Days of Being Wild that I always really loved, and I heard he had a new movie coming out, so I was interested in seeing it. Well, that's where I saw it, and ah, oh, it just blew me away. I just absolutely adored it. I loved it. It's I love uh, romantic films, and this film has just like this wonderful, uh, this, this wonderful romantic comedy flavor to it, while at the same time being encapsulized in this crazy, frenetic uh, Hong Kong world, which as wild as the Hong Kong movies are when you see them in America, if you actually see them in Hong Kong, they don't seem so wild because that's kind of what life is on the streets there. It kind of has that pace. It's very strange. And then, yeah, if you make it to the end of the movie, Tarantino shows back up again to like, talk out the movie with you. Kind of kind of like how we do, I guess. It was a pre-podcast on a VHS tape. But yeah, there was this sense of like noticing who had your vibe and kind of forming this community, this international community. Well, didn't Quentin Tarantino actually like start a production company to get these films to the mainstream? I mean, it did not work, but like he did a deal with Miramax. who was like, we need to get this film in the States. Um, unfortunately, it didn't connect. And it's so odd because... It does feel like, I don't know, when I was, again, this is a very fresh era for me because it was like my birth into what I thought was cool. Like, I remember like the red, blue and white trilogy, like that was also mm-hmm. kind of very popular at this point. Like, it it's odd that this one didn't connect because it's actually, I think, um, even more relatable. It feels very much like it has a lot of American elements to it, I guess. It, it doesn't feel like it's a hard film to wrap your head around, but maybe because it's it's a little bit more esoteric in the sense that the plot is a little uh, loose. It it doesn't finish up tidily. And I, I go back to Cameron Crowe's singles. I don't know why I think about that so much, but there is an element here where it's like, oh, we're, we're jumping to different stories. And there's only two. I know there was a third story that was cut and that actually became Fallen Angels or the basis of Fallen Angels. But this idea that you are seeing how different people kind of intersect. And I hear the location is the intersection. Um, 
but it, it's it's jarring. I guess at that point it's jarring because there is no defined end to the first story. Like when it switched, I was like, wait, oh, what? Like, you know, you, you have that moment, but then you just kind of settle into it again. Yeah. I mean, Quentin Tarantino's production company, it was called, or dist- distribution, it was called Rolling Thunder. And I think it actually worked in a way. You know, I, I mean, this film, Junkin' Express, because of this moment to like where everybody's sort of pushing it and talking about it in the late 90s of, of Tarantino, I think, raising its profile in the West, it really did get a foundation here. You know, a couple of years ago, the UK critics, they voted like the best films of the modern era. They created their own list of the best films of the modern era. And Chunking Express ranked eighth, which is pretty great. You know, and what I think is kind of interesting talking about this Rolling Thunder uh, distribution company, Rolling Thunder Pictures, I think, only released like uh six films I'm looking here on Wikipedia and it, and they are like switchblade sisters and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the mighty Peking man, you know, and like Detroit 9,000, like they're all very much these bigger, broader things that I think you would associate with Quentin Tarantino. And this is a, 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 a smaller piece in a way. I mean, it looks like a music video, but there is something even in Quentin Tarantino's production company, like that is different. Yeah. And yet you can see that I think he and Wong Kar Wai are interested in a lot of the same things, like digesting and commenting on pop culture. You mm-hmm. know, I think so much of what you see in Chunking Express is a filmmaker who is, you know, A, taking stock of what's happening in Hong Kong, which is that Hong Kong had been making these kind of like really action-y genre, police shooting up police movies for a long time, trying to figure out where he fit into like his country's art scene as an artist. But yet he's also folding in, I think a lot of, you know, I don't know if I'd even call it commentary, but like acknowledgement or playfulness, playful kind of teasing out ideas about Western cinema. You know, he dresses up the women in his movies to look like different movie stars. You've got this very, like in the very first half, you have Bridget Lynn dressed, I think almost exactly like Barbara Stanwyck in, um, in Double Indemnity, right? She's got that trench coat. Uh, She's yeah. got those little sunglasses on. She's got that blonde wig. I was thinking about it more like uh, that Cassavetes, um character. Uh, oh, Gloria. Yes, Gloria. Yeah, I think that's in there too. And a lot of people refer to that wig as the Marilyn wig, which I don't really think it looks like a Marilyn wig. Marilyn's hair was not that color. By the way, you know why she was in that outfit? Hmm. Because she was shooting a period piece at the same time and often on the same days. And she didn't have time to get out of hair and makeup from the previous shoot. So they just kind of threw that on her. <laughs> well, and I feel like that would make sense because when you're Bridget Lin and you're making this movie, you've been one of the biggest movie stars in Hong Kong since the 70s. And here you are in a real market area, you know, stealing shots a lot of the time that weren't that you didn't have permits to do. You're surrounded by people who could interrupt your take at any moment if they recognized who you oh, are. Wow. Okay. So you get to have her like running through in a costume, at least sort of in disguise. You know, she's definitely the most famous person in this cast, like right here at this moment. And she retires at the end of this film. Oh, it's, wow. Uh, yeah. Like, it, yeah, I get it. It's, it's she's almost bore herself. You know, you're talking about how he embraces and I want to get into the emotional core of it in a second, but like how he embraces pop culture. And I feel like him and Quentin Tarantino kind of bond on that. There's a, there's a really an embracing of American culture in here. Like, you know, we're obviously, uh, you know, some characters speak English and the idea ultimately of the mamas and the papas, like California dream. And like, that is such a big part of this film and that song and going to California and America, like America is an underlying thing, uh, throughout the film. I thought that was kind of interesting in a way. Like it, it took me by surprise how, relatable it seemed to me like sometimes i feel like i watch these movies and i emotionally relate to things but i don't necessarily 
identify with some of the cultural touchstones. And here, I feel like uh, they were able to do both. Yeah, it's funny, right? Like if you go back and read interviews from the people in like in like the Hong Kong art scene at this time, the one thing they seem to all have in common is that they don't like a lot of their contemporary culture, like especially the Hong Kong music. A lot of people just like rag left and right on the Hong Kong pop at the time, which becomes kind of funny because like the girl who's really associated with California Dreamin' and singing in here, Fei yeah. Wong. She actually becomes like a gigantic pop star, you know, right after this. Yeah. And also Takeshi uh, Kaneshiro, he also is a pop star, too. So they're doing music they approve of. But he's working with kind of these musicians and putting them through their first acting paces while being like, most music is garbage. Most of our movies are garbage. What can I do in the system to, like, shake it up? I mean, the reason why he has two main characters here who are cops, you know, in the first half it's um, cop two, two, three. And in the second half it's cop six, six, three is because when he was trying to get a financing in Hong Kong to make this movie in the first place, he was like, they're not going to want to approve like a weirdo love story. But if I put two cops in it, maybe they'll think it's a cop movie. So it's like two cops and there's some murders. And he's like, that will get me my financing when they read the script. They'll be like, a movie well, about cops? Cool. That's what people want to see. They want to see like that John Woo, bang, bang, bang cop stuff. We can give it to him. It's funny. It reminded me a little bit of Ganja and Hess in the way that it presents, right? Because in the beginning of it, not having seen the film, I was thinking, oh, this is an interesting story. It's about a cop who maybe gets in a relationship with this woman who's a criminal, but he doesn't know it. And I was, I was... You know, I was making my own assumptions about what it was because it really does play out like that. And then it slowly just after the first 20 minutes slows down. And then we get into this like inner life of this cop and we're these inner lives of, of both of these, these, these men. I imagine it must have been jarring to a certain degree, too, because an audience seeing it for the first time, like myself, like. I wonder if there was a little bit of a, an anger, like, oh, you're, you're setting something up, but you're not giving me the thing. You're not paying off the thing that I want to see. Now you're, you've tricked me into this, you know, this story about heartbreak. Because it really does do something so small, and it makes this character who in the beginning looks so tough running through the streets, right? He's a hilarious character, and, and how heartbroken he is you know but it's an amazing idea of like don't judge a book by its cover because we see him shot in this incredibly cool stylized way in a in a film that you know calls out your or like at least makes you think of all these cool uh action films and then it it just peels back the layers and all of a sudden you're like oh that that's me i'm them and like same we talked about harry metzelli last week like he could be kind of an asshole in the beginning. And when you have that turn to show that he actually can be heartbroken, you really can engage with him. And there's something really engaging about somebody who in the beginning, at least looks very cool. And then you see how not cool, no chill, just desperate he is. I mean, it, I don't know if that's more effective for characterization or, or not, but it really, it it made me care about this character a lot more. Yeah. I mean, there's something about him that's a little, delusional right Mm. like just a little bit like i think he's a little bit optimistic about his own charm you know he's like my girlfriend who he's broken up with at the start of this film they've been broken up for like a month may he's like she's gonna want me back it's gonna be fine then he sees bridget lynn in the bar in her blonde wig and he's like i can get this girl to like me she's gonna like me and of course she doesn't and may does not want him back and neither of the things he's saying are true about himself and his appeal to women are actually true 
I mean, that he gets so desperate. He's like going through and calling girls he hasn't talked to since elementary school, trying oh to find a God. date at one point. But like, don't what? you feel like, I mean, and this will get into like, I don't know. I, I really identified it because I feel like it captured the lowest moments of breakups. Like we all, I mean, I feel like we've all had them where you're just like, oh no. And you are, you know, I love calling the family. Like calling the family is such a desperate, weird move. Like, can I talk to the other sister? Can I talk to the dad? And you can tell it, you don't even hear them on the phone, but they're like clearly just like, oh God, trying to push him off. And you get to see this, but you only see it from his vantage point and him hanging outside the house and, and all these like rules that you play. I know like when I was a kid, um, I'd be like, if I make this basket, this will happen. Or if I do this, this will happen. And he's like, well, if I eat this, you know, if I get this pineapple, this will happen. Like there are all these when you do, when you just say them out loud or when you pink them, they're so desperate, but they are almost what you need to continue on. Like when you are in a, in a breakup, like you need this like fake, maybe this will turn around. Maybe this will be great. Like, or, and you need, and you need all those things. And I think you actually often are more bold because you are desperate. Like he goes up to that girl because he's like, I'm going to get over her. It, it, there's something, I think desperation shows something that often we don't get to see in movies. I think a lot of times in, in breakup films, you just see people crying or upset, but this utter desperation, this utter low statusness is so funny to me. It's beautiful. I think. I mean, he's this guy with all of these different totems. You know, if he can just buy a can of pineapple with the expiration date of May 1st, you know, the one month anniversary mm. of their breakup, also his birthday, if he can just collect an entire month of them, then maybe something good will happen. Almost like you're collecting bottle caps or something. And maybe and it was an April Fool's Day joke. You know, like that, like these yeah. dumb things. But and yet, you know who he reminded me of? Who? The, I mean, the structure of it is like, he reminded me of Romeo from Romeo and Juliet. Remember, hmm. because like in the play, that opens up with Romeo having just gone through a breakup. Like he's been dumped by what, Rosaline. Oh, okay, and so yeah. he spends the whole first part of the movie like moaning about Rosaline and like, where's my Rosaline? And how am I going to get in touch with Rosaline? And then getting really drunk and going out. Um, or it, again, now I'm thinking of like the Baz Luhrmann version, mm-hmm. like going out and getting drunk with his friends and getting high and going to a party. And then you fall in love with the stranger you know, out of the blue, like right. kind of a whirlwind love that maybe you can call love and maybe it is love or maybe it isn't. But it's like real enough for like a week or however long you want well, that moment to linger. I think that that moment when you realize that you can move on and this movie kind of lives in that right before time of like, when will that switch flip? When will you start to go back to the you and not the morning you, right? And this character has that moment. We watch that moment and obviously it's a movie, so it's all very compacted, but that idea of like this maybe those are the moments where you are bold or you're open to something, or that's the first time that something catches your eye. And, and it's, I think so beautifully articulated in the second half of the movie where he's like, Oh, the, the food tastes different. The, you know, I, you know, everything is a little bit different. I I'm sleeping better, but it's all been kind of uh, contrived for him to kind of get out of his own funk because like, they're all following these patterns. And it's like, once you break this pattern of feeling bad for yourself or following these rules that you've set arbitrarily like then you're allowed to kind of create new rules but they're stuck in this pattern of rules and and ideas uh which i think you get caught in when you are in mourning or you are i mean maybe just keep it to dumped but i think that the idea of like being dumped is such a a fun thing of like self-pity 
and you and you create these moments where like I'll never do this, I'll never get this, I must do this, I'm not this, and you just kind of you beat yourself up. Yeah, and they're having so much fun with him as a dumped guy. I mean, like Takeshi, the actor, he's really pretty. Like he's really one of like the top ten prettiest actors I think at this moment in Hong Kong. And yet he looks like such a goofball. You know the way he moves and the way he's kind of flopping around in different mm-hmm. places. And they shoot him to look cool when they want. You know, he's like running and chasing things. And they do that kind of the, the step printing technique. So where you see almost the lines of people running, yeah. where it's like streaky and staticky. It was Wong Kar Wai's way of saying, okay, if John Woo has the slow motion, I'm going to create my own visual language for this film. And it'll be like this kind of effect that I think is so cool because you you have both the sensation of like chasing after people that you can't catch. You know, like you're in motion and you're rushing around. But also the sense of being overwhelmed by sensation, but only a few things are ever in focus for you at any given time. Well, you're staying still and the world is moving around you, even though he's technically moving. But this idea of like, you can't, you can't connect with the world. Like you're kind of out of sync with the world. And I think when you are in these moments, you are out of sync with the world. Like you are, like you're not moving at the same speed as everybody else, which is kind of interesting too. You know, it's like this idea that, you know, is he a bad cop or is he just, he's in this moment, he's, he's not able to do his job effectively. I mean, you know, what all this like overwhelming sensation reminded me of, like what this market itself reminded me of, you know, because pretty much the whole thing is set in this market, right outside the market. Mm-hmm. Almost all of it is like under a roof, under a tarp, really random glimpses of sunshine here and there. It, it you know, Wong Kar Wai said that like this is his love letter to Hong Kong, to the neighborhood he grew up in, which, you know, is a really multicultural neighborhood. Tons of languages being kicked around everywhere. Hong Kong itself being a neighborhood with tons of languages getting kicked around everywhere. And yet, to me, I thought like this movie makes sense today as like a parallel of the internet, right? Of like yeah. looking for love and connection online because you're in this place that's complete sensory overload, a million things to look at, to try to distract yourself. And you're trying to find like a connection that is actually real and in focus for you. And it's this idea of you're overwhelmed by options in that market, different streets you can take and market markets you can go into and people you can meet. But like trying to make contact with a person, a place that feels so crowded, you know, is a really interesting contradiction. It's not like I'm alone, I'm sitting on a cliff overlooking the ocean. It's like, I'm alone in the middle of all of this that could keep me busy and it makes me feel more alone. All right, well, let me pitch this to you. I agree with what you're saying, but like, um, so Cop 223, right? He speaks four languages in the film, right? Uh, his narrations are in Mandarin. His live lines are in uh, heavily accented Cantonese. He spoke Japanese when he called one of the ex-girlfriends and he had one line in English when he apprehended the suspect. He said, hands up. Um, and he used all four when he approaches Bridget Lynn's character. And I was thinking about this idea of, is that an intentional thing? Because when we are in this world, we can pick who we want to be. We don't have to be who we are. We present ourselves. Like, you know, you go out to a bar, you go out to a party and you can, because the person doesn't know you, you can show the side of you that you want them to see. And it seems like this character, and maybe it's cultural, but it also feels like this character is, showing different sides to different people, like, and, and allowing him to put on different masks in a way, in the same way you're saying, like going out into this world, like, well, who do you, how do you want people to see you when you're out there? And who do you want to meet? Like, it's interesting that he uses an American 
uh, line of dialogue when he's apprehending a suspect, which I think is very much like cops and robbers and using that idea, like, you know, but then, you know, when he's in his own head, he is in Mandarin, you know, it's like, there's there, you know, I think it's, I, I think that idea is interesting. Who are we when we date somebody? Are we really ourselves? Are we really showing them the true version of us? I like that take because, you know, we just listened to him try to pick her up at the bar. In the bar, I love kind of like the sleazy saxophone music in that scene. Um, And they don't ever know each other. If I had to say what the first half says about love, to me, it feels like love is almost an independent action, right? Like he says he's in love with Bridget Lynn. He doesn't know anything about her. You know, right. he doesn't know that she's just murdered a bunch of people, which would definitely get in the way uh, if he do that since he's a cop. He doesn't really know what he doesn't know what her real hair looks like. He doesn't really know what her face looks like. He doesn't know anything about her except that she grudgingly tolerates sitting next to him. And then mm-hmm. they go to sleep in what I'm guessing is maybe a love motel. I don't know if that's his apartment or a love motel, but it looks really generic. And well, he's I don't think a love service. motel would have that much food uh, like our delivery service. You or maybe it would. Maybe I not. Know. I mean, if I, if I was we like when st- I was yeah. in Tokyo, I thought like when I heard about what they were is a much more uh, utilitarian uh, place. But maybe maybe you're right. I don't know. I mean, I've only stayed at one love motel and that was in Korea. And Ooh. they had a really big bathtub, like the bathtub. Well, was that makes ridiculous. sense. They do yeah, have a restaurant a downstairs. Yeah. Well, we'll see. Yeah. Uh, but but yeah, like he never really knows anything about her. But that, I think, doesn't cheapen the love that he feels you know it's like love is an act like you can share a moment with somebody and and there's something beautiful in that like he never verbalizes the word that he's in love with her he only says things to himself in a monologue and like are you able to love a person even if you don't know anything about them you know are you able to love a person when there's only this brief moment you know like like the expiration dates he's talking about you get one night with this person you never know anything about it and yet if they make this impression on you if they're the person who calls to wish you a happy birthday in the morning the only person and you never talk to them again does that count as love and i think this movie says it does like i think it's all about can you be open to that like can you be open to that and this is a and when we meet that character he is closed off to that he's still pining for something you know, he's not open to acknowledging the world around him. And I think that this is this relationship in this moment is like, we're watching him open himself up again. Like he's accepting her for whoever she is and however she wants to present. Like he's not doing his job. He's just like, okay, you are this. And, and there's something really interesting about it. Like it doesn't, he, he only needs to feel that activation of like, I fell in love with this woman. So then he can actually move on with his life. It's like remind himself that he can fall in love again. Yeah. Like the idea, like if you can do it, then you're better. But like, but at the beginning, of this, that's his arc. You know, even though it's not like a clean story, it's like his arc is like he couldn't and then he did. And that's, that's the story that we're following. And I think that that's like, oftentimes I think that when you start to feel that way about somebody else after a breakup, it's not the person you end up with. It's just a person that like activated that part of you that you thought was never going to be activated again, because you know, how could you ever? feel that way. And and sometimes it's like, you know, that idea of like the rebound person, like you date the rebound person. It's like, you know, um, yeah, exactly what they're that. talking about in Romeo in Harry Met Sally. Yeah, exactly. And, and that idea is, 
I think such a prevalent idea. Like it, it's almost like it just gives you the confidence to go back into the world as yourself. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. I'm Katie Rich. I'm one of the hosts of Vanity Fair's Little Gold Men podcast. Every week we cover the ups and downs of the Oscar race. From Barbenheimer to the Golden Globes controversy and much more. We also have weekly interviews with some of the year's biggest contenders like Emma Stone, Paul Giamatti, and America Ferreira. Whether you're a Hollywood insider or just want to win your office's Oscar pool, listen to Little Gold Men, available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening now. Now, I, I want to ask you, have you seen Lover's Rock yet? The no, Steve McQueen. Oh, it's it's one of the Steve McQueen movies in the um, five films that he did, the five film anthology okay. that just came out. Small Axe. Well, when you see it, like I think Lovers Lovers Rock is the best one. Um, mm-hmm. It's about like just one night going to a party, and the whole story is pretty much just told through music. Okay, you know, which I think gives it something to do in common with this movie, where like a lot of it is just told through like music and emotion, and like in the look of it. But they play a song in that movie a lot that they play a lot in this film. And I kind of feel like it's a little bit of a nod from like Steve McQueen to Wong Kar Wai. And that is this song by Dennis Brown that plays all the time in like this sleazy kind of expat bar where Bridget Lynn is doing her deals. That just really struck me because I know that Chunking Express is a film that has influenced so many of our filmmakers today. You know, like, I mean, pretty much number one again among them, like, who's always talking about his love of this film is Barry Jenkins. At the film school, I'd never really seen a foreign film before. I wasn't watching a lot of foreign films. I just remember just being, like, kind of sucked in and, uh, and having this feeling of how, of how big the world was, but how small it was um, at the same time because, you know, I don't speak Mandarin or Cantonese. I've never been outside of the state of Florida. And I'm watching this film and I'm feeling all these things. And then stylistically, it was made in a way that was different than any film I'd ever seen before. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what our, what our listeners are going to pick like for our listeners' choice. But if they do pick Moonlight, a film that we have talked about before, it'd be interesting to watch that one after this one. Because they are told so much through like color and tone and lights yeah. and shading. Yeah, I think they both have that, I don't know, romantic is a strange word for it, but I guess romantic in that sense of like overflowing emotion. I, I think that Barry Jenkins right now is kind of like carrying the torch for Wong Kar Wai in the way that Tarantino did in the 90s. I think there are a lot of similarities between Moonlight and this and, the, you know, the color scheme. I'm thinking about that, but I'm also thinking about, you know, oftentimes in Hollywood, we are pitched this idea like you got to find that special someone, that person who is your person. And when you find that person, you'll know, and everything will be roses. But the truth is, 
you can still have that relationship, that amazingly perfect relationship, but your life may have like these four or five markers of these amazing love moments, right? That are relationships that could have lasted a day, a month, a year, you know? And I think Moonlight does a great job of like capturing love in moments, right? They're seeing moments of these things. Um, but here, this will be one of those moments like cop two, two, three will always have this moment, whether or not it was good or bad, it reflects something so important about the true way that we experience of like, I want to get back to that, or that really made an impact on me. And it could be something that happened to you in high school. It could be something that happened to you in your twenties. It could be happening to you one night. It's just like these magical things that ignite you in a way that is, you know, that gets put it, uh, like a great meal. You know, you, you will always think about it and be like, oh, I love that. That was great. I don't want to eat it every night, but I had that great meal. You know, I want to marry mm-hmm. that meal, but it was a great meal. And there's a, a randomness to it. You know, he mm-hmm. says he's going to fall in love with the very first girl that walks through the door, which happens to be her. Yeah. And he seems to leave a lot of things up to chance. I, I like the scene when um, she falls asleep at the, at the Love Motel and he's sitting on the floor watching TV and he's ordered so much room service, like two burgers and four chef salads. And he's eating his food, but he's eating it behind his back. So he's like sitting on the ground and there's the table behind him and he's reaching his hand behind him and just whatever he grabs, is it a French fry? Is it a pickle? It doesn't really matter. Like that's what he wants at that moment. He just like grabs it and he eats it kind of randomly. Yeah. Because I I think there is a beauty in the idea of like randomness. You know, I think sometimes, um, like when I met my boyfriend, for example, um, we met watching uh, the second Hillary Clinton debate at a bar and uh, I was sitting with a group of friends and I didn't know him. I didn't know he was like coming or anything, but a different friend of mine had invited him and then she hadn't shown up last minute and she didn't right. tell him she wasn't coming. And I had actually invited a guy that I had been sort of seeing. I was considering it and he showed up, but he brought his neighbor and there was only one seat left at my table. So this guy that I was sort of seeing showed up, but he had to sit at a table for two. And okay. then this guy that I didn't really know, but I recognized his face shows up and is looking for my friend and sees me and sits down at our table. And that was just all like if this guy I had been sort of seeing had not brought his like neighbor, he would have sat at the table and I would have never met my boyfriend. Right. You know, and it's just, it's these weird little random things that happen that I find magical. Yeah. No, I mean, that's I mean, look, whenever you kind of break apart how you met somebody and, and oftentimes it always is this like kind of like it's this random moment. And sometimes they're in passing and sometimes they're not. I, I, uh, no, I, I'm, I'm just thinking about all of this, this stuff. And I, I also think about like how much of a relationship are those little things? Because the second half of the film is about the, the shirt, the bar of soap, the, the, you know, what's in the fridge. And I think, you know, oftentimes in a relationship, you fall in love with the way a relationship might affect your space. Oh, those pillows are always put in that order or the, you know, there's always this in the fridge or there's always, you know, these little peculiarities that we all have, whatever you, whenever you buy into somebody else, you're buying into their. Are you saying this based on June making fun of you publicly for how you make a bed? I I'm going to have a lot of, uh, I'm believe me, Amy, and I didn't want to reveal this too early, (laughs) uh, but I am garnering a lot of evidence here to feel like I was unfairly maligned for, uh, that I cleaned up our whole house in an hour and the bed was yes, quickly put together. But I saw June who made a bed yesterday. I took some pictures of it. I, I'm going to, I'm going to put together, <laughs> I, I'm waiting to strike with my full, uh, thing. I, how dare she? 
I'm the most, uh, I'm the most uh, organized person. I'm not, yes, it wasn't my best job, but I did not deserve that kind of uh, put me on blast. So I will get, I'll get my revenge on that. But, um, but yes, like you're right. Like those little things and like, he is, I don't think he's in love with the stewardess as much as he's in love with the way that she made his place. And that's why like him getting out of his, his connection to her was his place changing, right? Like, like sh- shaking it up. Like he just liked looking at her, her shirt up there. He liked looking at the bar of soap after they both used it. They, he liked, you know, I don't know. There, there's like, it's two different kinds of things. It's like, one is like, I'm in love with this person that I really don't even know, but yes, we had it and we're in love. And that's kind of like this kind of unrealistic way that we look at people. Like I saw this girl or I saw this boy or I saw this whoever at a, at a place and I am in love. Or I met them once. I had this conversation. That was my soul partner. Or that was whatever. And that's, that's a kind of love. And then the other kind of love is I just love the, the pattern. I love the way that they smell. I love the way that they do this. It has nothing to do with the person. It just is kind of like all the things around the person, you know, uh, if that makes sense. Um, and both of these characters had to kind of are being broken out of, I think not real love. It's just sort of like this more of that, like butterflies in the stomach love or that, that, uh, not there, there love. Oh my, am I making any sense? I mean, I'm thinking about, you know, with cop, uh, six, six, three play by Tony Long, we're talking about now, like Mm -hmm. the first time we're taken inside his apartment, it's for just like that, iconic romantic scene, you know, mm. scored to what a difference a day makes. 24 little hours What the sun and the flowers Where there used to be rain And like what, you, what you're seeing in that scene is, you know, the stewardess, I think, dressed up a little bit like Elizabeth Taylor. You know, she's leaning against mm-hmm. the door frame in a bra and a pencil skirt, you know, her uniform pencil skirt. But it looks really Elizabeth Taylor, her pose. And he's got a toy airplane and he's like landing it on her body. And it's... I was going to say it's very Armageddon. <laughs> but it's so romantic. and It's so solely. And it's just like full... You see his apartment being full of this like love and life. And then it's always a little bit empty after that. You know, until you see Faye start to fill it up. And I was thinking, like, there's even a little bit of Romeo and Juliet in this section, right? Because Romeo and Juliet, one of the big crisis points in that movie is that Juliet is trying to get a letter to Romeo and it doesn't get delivered. You know, she's, like, sending right. a letter. It it never makes it to him. And so he doesn't know that she, like, died and blah, 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 blah. But there's, like, such a crucial letter here in this movie. Two crucial letters. You know, first the stewardess, like, tries to leave her boyfriend a letter at the Midnight Express, this restaurant where I just have to say, I don't understand the food because everybody's ordering chef salads, but then they come out in this like wrapped foil oblong. Like, they look like, like a sub sandwich. Yeah, never ever order uh, a chef salad from uh, that kind of an express place. No way. No, thank you. Yeah, I mean, how I was like, is a chef salad slang for a type of sandwich? So I tried to find the original oh. restaurant because it was a real restaurant to be like, is there a chef salad sandwich? What are you talking about here? And I couldn't find a menu. But I would really like to know this. The restaurant today has now been turned into a 7-Eleven. Oh, wow. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. But so the stewardess leaves this note for him at 
at the restaurant, you know, in an envelope with the keys back to his apartment, this breakup note. And immediately, like, everybody opens this envelope and, like, steams it open. Like, the owner of the restaurant does it first, you know. And so she has this key, these keys in this letter that belong to this guy that she doesn't share. And there's something in there, I feel like, about, like, the interrupted information. It just feels like another nod to kind of the classic love story of our day. I mean, what do you think about Romeo and Juliet anyways? Do you think it's a happy story? Because to me, I think Romeo and Juliet is about... Two impulsive kids who never had a chance to reconsider what they were doing because everybody was pushing them in different directions and forcing them to act like they were grown up. I think that Romeo and Juliet are high school kids um, acting out on the fantasies of drama that they have, right? If I can't have them, then no one can. You know, like that kind of, you know, big, bold proclamation. And and, and it's and in a way, it's it. I don't know if they're even truly in love. They're just in, and I think, you're not in, I don't know, maybe I'm making a bold statement here and go, I don't think that you're in love with somebody until you have been able to, here's a, here's a bold statement. Oh, wow. Do I believe, do I believe this? I don't know if I do. All right. I'm going to say it. Yeah. Say it I don't know if I believe it. Yeah. I don't believe it, but maybe I do. I don't know if you can say you're truly in love with somebody until you spent a year with them. I think you can really? be like, I, yes, I think you can be like in, you could, you could be in lust with them. You could love everything about them. But like to truly know a person, like to truly love somebody, I think you need to like see them in all these different ways. And um, like you can, and I guess what maybe what it is, is like you can be in love, but is it as deep? Is it as real until you actually put in the time? Because I think a lot of love in the beginning stages is just new and it's exciting and it's different. And, um, and we're, and, and you're, and I think a lot of relationships that don't work is because people are like, well, I just, it's not different anymore. It's not new anymore. It's like, well, that, yeah, but that's, it evolves. It becomes this more rich, full thing. It's never, you know, really, I've been in a relationship for like uh, 15 years, you know, and, and it's not the same relationship, but like that I, that started as, but it, it's more richer and full because of everything that we kind of share. You know what I'm saying? It's sort of like, um, you know, it's like, a time tested thing. Like I'd rather have like, it's my favorite outfit. It's the thing I, or the favorite sweatshirt. It's the, it's the thing that's always going to stick with you. You know, I don't know. And you know, where there's like, oh my gosh, I got this brand new sweatshirt at the store. I love this sweatshirt. It's amazing. It's why I wear it all the time. But then in four months, do you still wear that sweatshirt? You love that sweatshirt when you had it, but there's something about the thing that you have in your closet that you've never gotten rid of from house to house, from state to state, from place to place that you're like, this is my thing. I love this thing. I'm never going to get rid of this thing. Whatever, whatever thing it is, that's what you love. But I could also go and buy something that I love. But I, I think there's something about like the immediacy of like new love and, and all the, I can't think and I can't sleep and I can't do anything. And, and that's so amazing. I wouldn't say get rid of that. I'm not saying don't have that, but I also feel like that's not real. That's not real. Like um, it is real, but it's, it's hard. It's like, you know, I, I don't even know how to like parse it, but it's like, there's a difference between, I guess, if I was to kill myself for someone, I would probably kill myself for somebody that I've been in a relationship with for a decade versus uh, somebody that I just met. I guess maybe that's what I'm saying. Does that make well, sense? Well, I guess on that scale. <laughs> but you I know mean, what I'm saying? It's like, no, but now I understand it? why you don't, why you, why, why you roll your eyes at every single movie from the 30s where they fall in love in like one day. That's fair. But I don't know if I agree okay. with that. I don't know if I agree with that. I mean, I, I think... 
I would like to believe that our heart is a muscle that can put out as much love as possible. Okay. And there is a different, there's so much of a difference in the kind of love that you're, you know, describing like with you in June and like yeah. the love that you might have for a sweatshirt. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, no, I'm, I'm trying yeah. to, yeah. No, 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 I know, I know, I know. I'm exaggerating too. But like, I would like to think that any moment that fills our heart with that much magic is genuine and does mean something. Yes. I agree. I'm not saying it doesn't. I'm just saying it's different, right? Yeah, I agree. I agree that it's different. I mean, you're definitely coming at it from, like we were talking about last episode, a post when Harry met Sally idea of what love is. You know, like love is a person that you want to talk to all the time about everything. Mm -hmm. Like love is a person you know, which, yeah, like that's a love that I think is a love I want to have, you know, and there's the love that like I'm glad to have. But yeah. I would still this? call some I, random moments in my life love. Well, that's what I'm saying too. And 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 I guess what I'm so that I'm, I'm we're saying the same thing. I think essentially, but maybe we're slightly slightly different. Like I think that love is the spark that ignites the flame that like is the fire of like your relationship, right? And so you always need that spark. Like you can never have the second without the first. But I think sometimes, and this is what I was saying before, like that spark maybe something that is an iconic moment in your life. Like I think that we, a, a lot of the times, like our love inventory of like our life may have a lot of like the quicker sparks, the momentary things. And then there are also these big things. And I think like there's a beauty of like, there's a beauty of like instantaneously falling in love. And I guess when I think about Romeo and Juliet, it seems silly to me that they like, they are, they're almost like it's the angst has like a body count, like to take a line from Heather's, but it's like, like, um, Like, you know, it's like, oh, that's too melodramatic. Where here, I feel like what's so amazing is like, um, you know, this person is like fallen to this trap of a pattern. What I loved, what was nice. I'm trying to recreate that. I'm trying to keep her shirt up. I'm going to try to do that. And when he actually gets rid of that stuff, he finds himself actually in love with his job. He's like, that's a job that he actually really likes. And these, and, you know, doing, taking over the Chunking Express. And then also, you know, being with, uh, you know, I just, I don't know. This thing is really interesting about how breaking patterns unlocks this person. And the same thing for the first person too. We can get caught in the pattern of love and trying to recreate that beginning part of love, that thing that we thought was great, but it isn't actually great. And maybe that's what I'm saying is uh, that love can also be detrimental. Like even though you have that spark, you could be addicted to that spark. And sometimes that spark creates, I got to I got I'm trying to get it back. I'm trying to get it back. I'm trying to get it back. And you stop looking at everything else. And then you actually are, stopping yourself from having it again because you're trying to capture it again. Does that make sense? No, I mean, I, get I mean, it, it I does. Although it. what's funny is like in the second half, like cop six, six, three doesn't, doesn't move on. He's like moved on, you know, like he right. doesn't make the decision to put her blouse away. And like, he doesn't make the decision to like get a new bar of soap. Like it's done for him by like his gremlin stalker, uh, Faye well, who works some, at but, the restaurant. But isn't that sometimes like, like she's almost like a, a breakup elf. Like somebody to come in and, and fix you. It's like, yeah, when you can't actually do the thing, like, like, oh, how, what, how great would that be to like, I'm switching all this stuff out and you don't even realize it because the pain of putting that away, the pain of acknowledging it, you know, it's like sometimes you need somebody else to come in and be like, I'm going to clean out your closet. I'm going to do this thing. I mean, I, I see it a lot more with mourning. Like, you know, like I can't take, you know, like my grandma couldn't take my grandfather's suits out of his closet and we had to go and help her do that, you know, because it's like, but that is to help move on, right? So she almost is like this magical person that like comes and helps somebody move on. 
Or she's a crazy stalker. I mean, or she's a crazy stalker. Or, yeah. I mean, by the way, yeah, she's breaking into the house. I'm, I, I'm not yeah, saying that she's amazing. But, yeah. yeah. No, but I like I like her arc because I think in her arc, you know, this idea that like she like we're told by the narrator, like she's going to fall in love with cop six, six, three in six hours. So she falls in mm-hmm. love with him, you know, right after their first meeting, you know, she's playing California Dreamin' like her anthem super loud and he's trying to talk to her. And so even though she's acting like, you know, a little bit cold, you know, kind of like playful, not really listening to him, like dancing, we're told that she's like in love with him from that moment, you know? Right. But, But what we see in her is... This idea of like, she's in love with the idea of being in love with him, but I don't know if she's in love with him as a person. She's in love with being in his apartment and his stuff and like being around the idea of a man in her life. Maybe she's in love with the idea of like being his ex-girlfriend, you know, being his stewardess. She wants to travel. She wants to go places. She puts on his ex-girlfriend's outfit. You know, she's, but she doesn't seem to be that interested so much in getting to know him, you know, she makes excuses to be around him and for him to like carry her groceries, yeah. but she doesn't really want to talk to him because in a way that would almost be like inferior to whatever she's built up in her mind. Now, why she drugs him? I cannot explain that. Why on earth does she drug him? Well, so he can sleep better. Oh, she drugs him so he can sleep better? Yeah, because he can't sleep well. I mean, look, I'm not saying that this is normal. I'm just saying yeah. but like, that, like, that's the reason. She's trying to help him. And I, I love when she's like rolling around in the bed and finds that hair. And she's like, it's so like, um, it's so like an opening of adventures and babysitting. So like, just full of this, like, I, like she's embracing this hair that she found in the bed. It's like, it's, Whose she plays hair like, is it, do you think? Because I thought it was a little bit long for him. I thought it was the I know, me too. Yeah, I think it's his. I bet, I, I, but I feel like, or maybe it's hers. I don't know. I thought it was his. I thought she was like embracing a part of him. <laughs> I mean, she's such like a fun, bizarre character. She reminds me a lot of Amelie, you know, just like yeah. doesn't quite seem to exist in the real world. And I think she's a little bit insane. Like, I like that we get these little glimpses of her from the background, like buying gigantic stuffed animals of her own. You know, like you see her in the yeah. background buying that gigantic Garfield in like the first half while we're watching Bridget Lynn and uh, Cop 223. I mean, to me, my favorite thing that she does is when she relabels all of his sardine cans because that's just absolute chaos agent at work. Like, yes. why is she doing that? But he starts to be awake and be like, my sardines don't taste the way that they used to taste. I like her stubbornness. I like that whenever her boss turns the music down, she turns it back up. And I like he that does she it ha- too, yeah. Yeah, and I like that she has that spunk when she like walks by him and she thinks that other waitress is hitting on him. She makes fun of the other waitress and tries yeah. to chase him away. But I do think there's something very childish in her love. You know, that she really, she'd almost rather worship him the way that like when I was a kid, I put pictures of like heavy metal singers on my wall. You know, right. like I don't really want to meet Slash, but it's like fun to think about Slash. And like, what if right. Slash and I went out for an ice cream? But I don't so want I, to do that. That'd be I weird. guess what I'm saying is like, this is all, this movie is embracing all those weird parts of love. The parts of love that aren't necessarily always um, front and center in Hollywood movies, right? These, this is like about the obsession, the uh, the pity, the oh, I'll never do this. Like it's all the it's all the 
ugly side of love, right? Because we're talking about a stalker. We're talking about somebody who's upset. Like they're both stalkers, like in a way, like in both stories, like they're, they parallel each other. They're just differently stalkers. Like he's like, oh, I wait outside of her window. Sometimes, you know, I call up her family and she's like, I'm in his apartment. I'm changing the thing. Like it's all the things that we do for love and to get that feeling. It's, it's a drug. It's like, these are addicts. We're, they're drug, they're love addicts. And I feel like there's something really cool about that because we can all identify with that feeling. And I think we've all had that. You know, by the way, I was thinking when I was watching her that she reminded me of um, of Gene Seberg, you know, speaking of like this film kind of loving the French New Wave and this idea of like shooting yeah. things on location, shooting it with action, making it feel modern. But the actress herself, Faye, she said that what really influenced her haircut, at least for her, was that she genuinely loved the cranberries, which is great because, you know, that voice that you hear singing dreams throughout the film. That's her, right? That's actually her. And so, yeah, to her, like her haircut was kind of more of an homage, like this cool kind of like 90s grunge girl that she worshipped, which, by the way, that cover of Dreams that she's saying here became one of her huge hits in Hong Kong. And according to like music critics at the time, like her singing that song helped Hong Kong itself open itself up to like more grunge music, to more like oh, wow. modern day 90s music and get away from a lot of the, the ballads that, you know, everybody was making fun of really yeah. mercilessly. By the way, I don't know if her voice sounds familiar to anybody out there, but if you have played the game Final Fantasy VIII, you have heard her. Here she is. Whoa. Never say my songs on the stage on my own. You know, I was thinking like we did Dogtooth and that also had like a major performance in there from a person who's more known as like a singer than an actor. Mm -hmm. You know, that Yorgos Lanthimos cast the younger sister as like a rock star. And I like I like actors who are able to like pull something out of people in the way that they work. I think one thing that Wong Kar Wai has in common with Yorgos Lanthimos and the performances they get from the people they pick is that they are really both into improv. You know, they are both into like putting people into a scene and then figuring out how it works for them. The best way to work with uh, uh, the actors or an actress is not to give her a, like um, a, a fixed role. Because I think most of the films today is, is you have the script first and then you cast someone to play that characters. But in a way, the best way to work with an actor or an actress is to customize the, 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 the role for him because you can borrow something from that person. And in a way, then it, the experience or the performance will be unique. And look, I can't agree with that more. Someone who came off of a show for seven years that was completely improvised, like Curb, you know, by one of the creators of, uh, of Curb, it's such a freeing thing because you get to bring a part of yourself to the to the world. And I think it it also, I think as a writer and as a performer, you can write something that sounds really good, but sometimes it just doesn't make sense when you're saying it out loud. And I think, you know, there are things that are good for the written word and there are things that are good for, you know, actual real conversation, the overtalk and catching these little moments. And And when we see Altman, like you get these really fun performances that because people are reacting, right? Isn't that all... You know, what they always say, acting is just reacting. And so when you are actually improvising, you're forced 
to, and I think that's what, why Harry Metzeli has such good chemistry. They're reacting to each other. And that last scene, I think, is completely improvised in this movie in Chunking. It's like, it's so natural. It's so kind of awkward. It's so, it's not perfect, It's but it is perfect. It's like, oh, that's how that conversation would go. It's like, there's silences, there's beats, there's moments. And there's something so real about not having that witty back and forth. You know, we're not all Aaron Sorkin. Uh, you know, and I think that what yeah, if we were? See, what if the world really was oh being John Malkovich? Just it was walking all and us talking, as Aaron Sorkin. Uh, just walking and talking. But I mean, I think you see that with Judd Apatow and Seth Rogen and all these people. Like they give a lot of latitude to uh, their actors. Like go do you do it? Let's get it the way we want. I mean, I do it too. It's like get it the way we want, and then let's try it differently. Because why you you're hiring somebody for what they're bringing to the table, not just to be a puppet. And, uh, and I think you get better performances, even if you use just a section of it, a look, a glance, a something, it, it, it makes it pop so much more. Yeah. Although it sounds like it also seems a little bit exhausting to work with Wong Kar Wai because he mm-hmm. manages to be like a person who loves improvisation and yet really loves doing like tons and tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of takes. Like he's a huge mega take guy. Oh, which, really? yeah, it wound up actually breaking Christopher Doyle. You know, they oh, worked no. together for several films. And then finally, they did just at a moment, he's like, I can't keep reshooting scenes. I'm losing my mind. I can't work with you anymore, which it has been a real bummer for people who have been like fans of their partnership together, that they just hit a wall where he was like, I can't do this, man. Like, you are completely breaking me. Um, that, I mean, yeah, that, I mean, that's interesting for an improvising director to shoot that much, too. Uh, yeah, but maybe it's I, like trying to find when you're trying to find the scene, you're just letting the camera roll and you're like, oh, that, we didn't get it yet. We didn't get it yet. Now we got it. Yeah. And I think he really wants to also break his actors down in that way. Like if he wants them to be exhausted, he wants them to really be exhausted. He wants to get them to like a level of just like, oh, fine. I'm getting the lines out. Well, wasn't that the whole idea like that, like uh, Kubrick was saying that like, if you do it enough times, you forget all the choices that you've made. And then you actually start just really responding or there's some version of that. I mean, I remember watching the documentary on the shining and it was sort of like, the idea was like, if we do it that much, we take out all the artifice. Um, mm. You know, the one story I'll tell, and I won't name any names because it's whatever. There's a, an actor getting out of a car in a very big movie with a very big director. And they were doing it time and time again, over, 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 over. And they got up to like 50 times and the, and the big actor, huge star, says to the director, did, did we get it yet? And the director like looks at him and says, no, I'll tell you though, when we're close and I don't know what it is. And maybe it is partially power or whatever, but it's like, you know what they're, what they might be looking for. Maybe that is too much, but like sometimes, you know, actors may come so prepared. I remember like I would sometimes work with different actors and you look at their, you look at their script and there's a million notes there. And it's like, I've gone over this with the coach and I have all my moments and I have all my beats. And there's something so inorganic to that because I think acting is such a collaborative experience. And if you come in knowing like on this line, I'm going to do this. And on that line, I'm going to do that. Like you stop the process of actually acting and you just kind of are almost doing a solo performance. that's not actually taking in what's happening and that different actors are different ways. Some actors come in completely unprepared. Uh, and not to say that that makes a great performance. Sometimes they're searching for the line. You know, I think the, the sweet spot is the middle. Like I have everything ready to go and I can throw it all away in a moment's notice. I mean, maybe that's why Wong Kar Wai doesn't like to give his actors scripts at all. Honestly, he doesn't like mm. to even rehearse. Like they don't do rehearsals for this. He doesn't want them practicing. He wants it to feel fresh in a moment. So basically what you're saying is he's finding it 
it literally, he's finding what he wants in the moment. So like, I think a lot of the times the best version of it is a director who knows what they want. And when the actors are kind of finding it, like you're helping them guide them to it and you're finding it together. It seems like he's just like, hey, do it again, do it again. Oh yeah, that's kind of what I want. And, uh, do a little bit of this, do a little bit of that. Like, I mean, you know, like David Fincher is often somebody who is mentioned as being, you know, doing a lot of takes, but I think he's very exacting in what he wants. He knows exactly what he wants. Alfred Hitchcock knows exactly what he wants. Um, here, it seems like he's kind of waiting for a little bit of divine inspiration. Like, oh yeah, that works. More of that, less of that. Okay, we got that, more of this. You know, with the league, not, the, not that the league is high acting, but, um, you know, we would, our first take would probably be about 30 minutes and then it would be a five minute scene, but we would, over the course of two hours, take that 30 minutes and, you know, shoot it all down to one moment. And even in the last takes, we're still, we're still allowing ourselves to react interestingly and organically but it is all to the service of just getting this bigger thing down to a smaller nugget yeah and it sounds like to to wonka why like he's a person who likes to find the movie in the editing room like he wants to get all mm. of his options maybe that's how he is about love like give me all the options and then let me figure out what i want when i have tasted every can of pineapple i looked up by the way if you would have any side effects if you ate that much pineapple and not really i think you'd be okay don't you love that idea that like he's eating that pineapple, which represents his love, right? And he and he and he get and he's like, I'm gonna eat it all, and then he vomits. It's almost like that is like cleaning out his system to go back uh, in love. It's almost like he's vom, he's like purging himself, like he is he's like poisoning himself on the thing that used to bring him pleasure or bring her pleasure. It's such a, a beautiful way of like looking at things, and again. Uh, as a good director taught me, it's like, there's no reason to get two of the same takes ever. If you got <laughs> it, like, 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 and, and so it's like, if you got that take, then try to do something different because in the edit room, you're never going to want to sift through four of the same takes. And I'll tell you, like as sitting, some of who sits in an editing room, I hate it. Cause it's already like, Oh, Oh, yeah. all right. Well, great. Mm-hmm. It's the same take again. Like, and so I think it's always like a real challenge to I, I like finding stuff in the edit room too, because, but the only way you can do that is if you have a lot of options. And I guess that's what he wants is a lot of options uh, to kind of piece it all together. Well, you know what I hope then? I hope what? that in one of his takes of the final murder at the end of the first half, you know, where, where um, Bridget Lynn kills uh, Tom Baker, that actor who's like her, the double crossing oh, yeah, yeah, drug yeah. dealer. I hope that when he died opening a can of sardines for the kittens, that at least the kittens got to eat the sardines. And I love the idea of like dying in your last act is like playing with kittens. That's not <laughs> If you had like to go that. out. I was thinking that maybe it would be a real sad moment that your last drink is a soul. <laughs> they drink so much soul here. Yeah. I don't I don't know if I've ever had a soul. I must have had one at like a party in my twenties, right? <laughs> yeah. Maybe, I guess. Peter, like even thinking about like the sound design a little bit as connected to like that character Tom and like when he double crosses Bridget Lynn, you know, she gets double crossed at that moment where she walks into the airport. She's got all of her people with her. They've got all of the heroin in their shoes. Um, and she goes over to get the counter, uh, to get the tickets from the counter. When she turns around, they've disappeared, right? And you yeah. have that moment of her looking around trying to figure out what they were, where they go, where they where they've gone. And what you hear is the sound of the letters and numbers of the flights kind of rustling back and forth as mm-hmm. they like change at the airport to like change the times. And I love how in the sound design, it sounds like a snake. Like as she's getting betrayed, you have this kind of sibilant S sound happening that makes you really understand her betrayal. Mm-hmm. 
you know, by the way, when this film comes out in 1994, like the context that a lot of people are putting it in, you know, the context of like expiration dates and like celebrating this Hong Kong that we've known, a Hong Kong that's so multicultural and, and transient and holding on, like trying to celebrate what's existed here in this place, even if it is like a, a country that could be chaotic and lonely. The context that people were putting it in was this idea that Hong Kong had its own expiration date. You know, that they had, it had been agreed for them that they had 50 years to be under UK rule and that then they were going to be handed over to China in 1997. And when you hear critics put this film in the context of Hong Kong at the time, that's one of the major things that they talk about is like, what did this film mean to Wong Kar Wai knowing that his own future like the own future of the country that he loved was about to be handed over that like there were these clouds about what was going to exist in Hong Kong afterwards, which we've seen has, has not come to pass well. And maybe it's about giving up a love or, 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 or the patterns of this country. And like, you're going into something new and, and, and fearing that too. Right. Yeah. And, and something about just this unique culture, you know, Hong Kong is such a unique culture, such a unique melting pot. And this movie is set in one of the most unique corners of a unique city, like the melting pot of the melting pot. Yeah. And I'm glad that it was at least captured on footage. Like I've heard that now you can go, like you can still go and you can take your Wong Kar Wai tour. Um, <laughs> but like at uh, the Chongqing um, mansions, now like this entire market has been covered. Like I think 90% of it is covered with um, security cameras you know, oh, wow. and, you know, security cameras being a gigantic thing of, like of oppression. Yeah. And so you can't even, you can't have crime happen in there. You can't have like illicit movies happen in there. You yeah. can't have horrible jokes like whatever you just made happen in there. Um, all of these things are illegal in the state. My jokes are very legal and as many cameras can <laughs> capture them as they want. Uh, the, but yeah, this like, yeah. but this like. This time changed. It was yeah, done. Yeah. This wild atmosphere doesn't exist anymore. It's interesting because this movie is, you know, like you said, it's it's capturing a moment that is very specific to where it is shot. It's capturing a moment that's very specific to cinema and culture in the 90s. I feel like this is something that people were talking about, love and violence. And 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 I think we're dealing with a lot of things like Romeo and Juliet, like that. What is the evolution of that? Natural born killers, you know, natural born killers. Again, I'm going to reference singles one more time to singles. Like, you know, there's like, there's so many, you know, variables. Uh, True romance has like this element of like this Bonnie and Clyde, new Bonnie and Clyde. Like what is, what is love and, and, and what would you do for love and who are normal people who would not do this? It really takes the world by storm, right? Because it, it, it gets the, um, in the Stockholm International Film Festival, uh, it wins the Best Actress and Best Director, and it gets a nomination for Best Film in the Golden Horse Awards. It gets a Best Actor Award in the Hong Kong. It gets Best Picture, Director, Actor, Editing. Uh, you know, and it's nominated for Actress and Supporting Actress and Screenplay. It just, it's a giant movie that even uh, people are ecstatic about. I mean, it, it basically, like, I think over almost 90% on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, but I wonder if that is something that is, in looking back on it too, like this movie has grown in popularity or how, what, you know, what do people think when it came out? It has definitely grown in popularity because when this movie came out, people really weren't sure what to make of it, to be honest. The number one insult that was put on the film was that it was very MTV, which mm. I think is a product Weird. of A, it having like interesting visuals and B, a lot of pop music. Like you're layering popular songs with interesting visuals 
everybody's gonna be like MTV and roll their eyes. And so that's what happened in a lot of reviews uh, of this movie from major publications. Uh, One publication that didn't like it is the New York Times. Uh, This is what the New York Times said about Chunking Express. Lurching vertiginous camera work is one hallmark of Wong Kar Wai's Chunking Express, a film from Hong Kong with a tirelessly capricious sense of style. While its slender two-tiered plot links love affairs that happen largely by accident, the film's real interest seems to lie in raffish, raffish affectation. Mr. Wong has legitimate visual flair, but his characters spend an awful lot of time playing impish tricks. A film in which a man talks to his dish towel has an overdeveloped sense of fun. Mr. Wong, whose Days of Being Wild was shown at the new director's new film series in 1991, displays aggressive energy, but his material is slight. Chungking Express is filled with global village references to fast food, video, convenience stores, Bruce Willis and Demi Moore. While Mr. Wong's visual energy harkens back to early new wave experimentation, it also has a substantial rock video component, which suggests that the detrius of mass culture has a way of coming home to roost. So basically she is like, Kind of insulting in the way people go and like insult Michelle Gondry, like you're all fun, but you're not saying anything. And then also yeah. saying, this is just like a magpie collection of everything I hate about pop culture. And you just put it all in one film. Who cares? So I, I think that that's such a, you know, I, you know, I don't agree with it, but I think I, I can see how, again, if you're not along for the ride and it doesn't make sense as a plot, like the, the, the plot is very secondary to what the emotions and what the story is, I guess, you know, and I could see seeing it and just being like, oh, this is just pomp and circumstance. So the last thing I think about this film is that it's MTV. Yeah, it does some cool stylized shots, but so is, you know, you talk about John Woo earlier in the, in the thing. You talk about, we talk about Quentin Tarantino. Like those things feel so much more of the MTV, you know, Michael Bay in 1994 generation than, than this. This has moments, but it's not overriding. It's, it all, in, in many respects, it's really only for one section. It's only for the section with, uh, you know, her heroine with their, her hair, you know, to kind of cover up the action that they couldn't shoot. Yeah. And also what's even wrong with MTV? I mean, maybe like Nothing in 1994 is, yeah. slash 96, this is reviewed in 96. We didn't have like that giant backlog of like film directors who made their reputation on MTV yet. You know, like we weren't all yet bowing down to David Fincher and Spike yeah. Jones for being like great visual authors and Michelle Gondry, whose films I, I like his childishness, to be honest. I, I'll always stick up for it. I mean- we're going we're gonna to be talking about it later on in the series. His more adult of his childish films. Yeah. And I think, that, yeah, by the way, like MTV is like a thrown around word that I feel like is like good MTV is great. Yeah. Like, and, and that, like, you know, like, you know, and that is, it is like what you said, it, it's breaking some of the most exciting talents that we have. Like, and, and that could be on numerous fronts, you know, whatever they could possibly do. You know, I think it's a late, I think it's a lazy comparison. Anything is MTV. What's MTV? I don't know. Headbanger Ball. Is that MTV? It is. But is that not, they're not, not referencing that. They're referencing, uh, you know, uh, that show that, uh, that, uh, oh gosh, I forget the guys who starred in, uh, what, Eric who's Neese? the man. Are you thinking of the grind? Oh, Eric Neese. Yeah. I mean, like, they, were all you these thinking of are, Eric Neese from the grind? No, I was thinking about the guys from, uh, who's the man, uh, that hosted that, uh, rap show. Yo, MTV raps. That's what I was thinking about. Like, is that MTV? It is, but that's not what they're referencing here. You know, it's like, I don't know what they're referencing. They're referencing like fast cuts. Yeah, bullshit. <laughs> well, either way, uh, allegedly Wong Kar Wai is doing a sequel to Chunking Express. Because a oh, couple wait. months ago, uh, a report broke just a few months ago that he had filed a script uh, called Chunking Express 2020. And it was being looked oh, over wow. for review and approval. 
And I wonder how that will go. I, I'm very curious to see what he wants to do next. Because like, I think his a lot of his films since then have been either extraordinarily good, like In yeah. the Mood for Love, um, another contender we could have put up in this lot, or like My Blueberry Nights, where he tries to work with a musician again, Nora Jones, and it's just awful. I don't know if you've seen My Blueberry Nights, but it's no, oh, I've not. <laughs> terrible, 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 terrible film. Terrible. Oh, this is interesting. This has been such a big conversation. I think we've talked a lot about love as much as we talked about this film uh, and falling in love and heartbreak in love. Uh, but what about this film? Is this a film that we shoot up into space? Oh, you know, honestly, I think no, but right. it's not an easy call. It's not an easy call. I, I, I think... I've loved seeing the Wong Kar Wai style get absorbed into our visual mm-hmm. looks here. I think that that's really cool. I want to see where that goes. I love this movie as a story that centers loneliness at the center of love. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think you can be lonely even if you're in a happy relationship. Absolutely. You know, and and I think that a film that recognizes like serendipity and chance and chaos and low and in the emptiness at the center of it is really romantic in its own way. So I like this story existing as part of our, as part of our like library of films about what romance are. Yeah, I do too. I mean, like, I feel like, um, there's something really special about this movie and I'm happy that I saw it. I don't know if it just jumps up to that list, but I think it's actually a very, like, it's a cool representation of something that I haven't really seen. I think that other movies out there do a better job of maybe telling a fuller story with elements of this, but this movie really gets to embrace a very specific part of being a couple, being in love, being part of a breakup, and it really revels in it. So there, there's a specialness in that uniqueness of this, but I don't know if it's, if it is on the list, but I think it's a movie that people should see. Yeah, and I'm down to be convinced otherwise because I know that there are some passionate, passionate lovers of this film out there. And so my ears are open. My ears, well, my heart is open. My ears are open. I'm Serendipity, o- I'm baby. Give well. me a chef salad. And I think as we've all seen and we've been talking about it in our Twitch show that we did uh, a little while ago, these films have to grow on you too. Like we just saw it. Let's see where we are in a little bit. And I know you've seen it again, but we're talking about it. We're going to be watching other movies. We're going to start to have this debate between them all. So it's hard for me to always like, kind of give a, an immediate response. Like right now, I don't see it as a clean cut, like absolutely, but I also don't want to not acknowledge it. I will say though, next week's movie, you're going to have to talk me off a ledge on this one. Cause I feel like this is the one that's I, like, let's just put it in the, put it on the hard drive already. Uh, next week to celebrate Groundhog Day, we are going to be doing Groundhog Day, an amazing Harold Ramis, Bill Murray, Andy McDowell, Chris Elliott, uh, Stephen Tobolowsky film that I love so, so much. Uh, Let's take a listen to the trailer. Groundhog time. A thousand people freezing their butts off waiting to worship a rat. Weatherman Phil Connors is spending the day in Puxatawney, Pennsylvania. Phil? Mad! Mad Ryerson, I did the whistling belly button trick at the high school talent show. Bing! But Phil's about to find out he's not just stuck in Puxatawney. Will you be checking out today, Mr. Connors? Chance of departure today, 100%. He's stuck in 
Groundhog Day. I'm reliving the same day over and over. Bill? Ned Ryerson? Bang! Do you ever have deja vu, Mrs. Lancaster? I don't think so, but I could check with the kitchen. Well, it's Groundhog Day. Again? At first, he was a little anxious. Bill? Will you be checking out today, Mr. Connors? I'd say the chance of departure is 80%. But now, we could do whatever we want. He's discovering the possibilities. Don't you worry about cholesterol? Why? And living life Mm. like there's no tomorrow. Phil Connors! Ned! Uh, obviously Groundhog Day is available everywhere and anywhere. And we'll all be talking about Groundhog Day because it is Groundhog Day. And, uh, and I hear that this year, if the Groundhog sees a shadow, uh, that means that we get more vaccinations. Oh, see that shadow, baby. I want to have a hot girl summer. (laughs) Uh, Amy, I'm very excited to talk to you about Groundhog Day next week. Uh, and, uh, this has been a blast talking about Chunking Express. (laughs) 